Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Cole Dill, and it is my joy and honor to be up here this morning. We're going to be kicking off a five-part Advent series, and I couldn't have asked for a more beautiful of a morning to start our Advent series with. Uh, I got up early this morning and was just watching the snowfall as I was preparing for this message, and it was just, it was such a, a special time just seeing the snowfall in that peaceful environment. And so as we start this uh, five-part series uh, today, we're going to be going through the different aspects of Jesus' birth, his life, his upbringing, and the different uh, ways that he shaped the cultural norms of the day. But today, we're going to start off with something a little bit different for Advent. We're going to look at Jesus' birth from a different perspective. We're going to look at his birth from a behind-the-scenes perspective, so to speak. What was happening in the spiritual realm around the time of Jesus' birth? And when I first got asked to do this topic, a couple questions jumped to my mind. First of all, well, who are the main characters or players in the spiritual realm? Secondly, why was there a war between these players? Why was there an assassination plan to kill Jesus the moment he was born? Is this battle still ongoing? And if so, how does it come to an end? And when we look at the different Gospels and the four different Gospels of the story of Jesus' birth, we gain a lot of insight into the physical nature of his birth and his upbringing, but we don't get a lot of insight as to what was happening in the spiritual realm. And so we need to find another passage, somewhere else in Scripture that answers some of these questions. And it turns out there is a passage that does that, and that's Revelation chapter 12. So as I open this up with the word of prayer, turn with me to 1034 in your pew Bibles. Father, thank you so much for this morning that you've given us just to gather together. Uh, We're thankful for this past week as we were able to celebrate Thanksgiving, and we are so thankful for the ability that we have to gather in this facility as a body in Christ and be able to openly and freely worship you. I pray now as we move our hearts into a time of Advent that you would just grant us uh, open eyes, soften hearts, ears not just to hear but also to listen and receive what you have in store for us today. I pray that you would minimize the distractions of the enemy during this message, and that you would just allow us to be able to receive what you have in store. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. So before I jump too far into my message, as I was preparing and prepping for this sermon, I came across a message by Skip Heitzig, and it matched so perfectly with what I was going to share that I'm going to bring some of his points into this message today. So I once heard it said that sermons are either inspirational or they're informational. And it's my hope today that this is going to be a mixture of both, but in order to get to the inspirational side of things, we first need to do our background homework. And you're going to see how we go through that today. So around the year 95 AD, several decades after Christ has lived on this earth and has ascended into the right hand of God, uh, most of the disciples have been killed by this point for their belief in Christ and their belief in the resurrected Messiah. There's one remaining disciple, and that is John. And after failed attempts to kill John, The current Roman emperor at the time in 95 AD exiled him to a small island called Patmos. And this island is located right between present-day Turkey and Greece. Uh, It's kind of hard to see, but it's on the upper right-hand side there, a little orange island there by the name of Patmos. And John was meant to spend the remainder of his days on this island. He's an old man at this point. And one day, John is deep in meditation and prayer, and he gets this revelation from none other than Jesus himself and these series of visions. And most of these visions pertain to a future seven-year period, but some of these visions look backwards at stuff that have already occurred in Scripture. And today we're going to look at one of those sections that look back at what was happening in the spiritual realm throughout Jesus' birth and, frankly, the whole uh, Scripture. And so with that in mind, let's jump into verses 1 through 5 of chapter 12 of Revelation. Revelation. 
So a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So when we look at passages like this, first of all, John starts the passage by saying this is a sign. And so we know right off the bat that this is not a literal woman, a literal baby, and a literal dragon, because it is a sign. It used to represent something that is very real. But again, these objects are signs or symbols. And it's imperative, crucial, when we look at studies of of passages like this in Scripture, that we minimize any human interpretation and assumptions that we make. If you're like me, I usually look at passages like this and instantly jump with my 21st century cultural and worldly views and make assumptions as to what these mean. But the Bible is meant to surpass time, correct? Not just meant for us in this current age. And we need to make sure that we limit any of these type of assumptions we bring into these signs and symbols. So how do we do that? Well, from what I've studied in these type of passages, most of the time, Scripture itself will interpret the meaning of these signs and symbols. The key, though, is just knowing where to look for the answer to these symbols. And when I was in graduate school, my least favorite part was having to write my doctoral thesis paper. I am not a grammar person whatsoever. I'm more of a medical science and math person. And I just despised having to write this paper. And as I went through it, we had to have it ready to publish by the time that I graduated in a medical journal. And one of the things that we had to do was anytime you used a big medical phrase or description, they often had acronyms for it. So for example, let's say I was going to use Northfield Christian Fellowship. The way I'd write this in my paper, it was I I would at first write out Northfield Christian Fellowship and then in parentheses write NCF. That way, anytime moving forward in the paper, whenever I wanted to write Northfield Christian Fellowship, I would simply say NCF and the reader should know that's what it means. Now, if you are reading a scholarly article and you come across a paper and there's this acronym that you don't understand, what should you do? Well, you should always look back earlier in that article to find the first time that acronym was used, and there it should be defined in full. And the same thing is true here with Scripture. When we see a sign or a symbol used in Scripture, the first place we look for its interpretation is in that immediate context, if that's the first time it's being used. But if it's not found there, where do we look? Well, first we look at the rest of that book to see if it's defined in that book, And if it's not there, we always look earlier in Scripture. Because if it's not in that immediate context, there must have been somewhere earlier in Scripture where that sign or symbol is used. So using that interpretation, let's look at these signs to figure out what they mean. So the first sign is the sign of the woman. Now she's clothed in the sun, she has the moon under her feet, and she has 12 stars on her head. Now in the immediate context, we don't get a clear picture as to who this woman is. If you look in the rest of the book, Revelation, we don't get a clear picture as to who this woman is. So we have to look earlier in Scripture. And it turns out there is only one other place in Scripture that these symbols are used in conjunction with one another in this type of a vision. And we find that all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, in chapter 37. And at this point in Genesis, Joseph is having dreams. And he's having dreams about ruling over his family. And the second dream he has, starting in verse 9... 
It says, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. This is the important part because his father, Jacob, interprets the dream. He says, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So Jacob, Joseph's dad, defines the meaning of these symbols. The sun and the moon are Jacob and Joseph's mom, and the 11 stars are the 11 other brothers of Joseph. So what do they make up? What does the sun, the moon, and the stars, the mom, the dad, and the boys all make up? They make up a family, but not just any family. They make up the family of Israel. This is the initial family. Every one of these brothers become the 12 tribes of Israel. The difference between this and in Revelation 12 is now you see the 12 star added in. Joseph is now included to represent the entire family of Israel. And this starts to make sense because when you look through Old Testament scripture based on Israel, Israel is often defined as a woman, a woman in childbirth, a woman in prevail. Secondly, if we look at the rest of the context in Revelation chapter 12, we go on to see that this woman is involved in the future tribulation events. And we know in Jeremiah that the author says that tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. And so this all starts to make sense. Based on the only other time this symbol is used in Scripture, we can safely assume that the woman represents the nation of Israel. But she's pregnant. And she's crying out in pain and she's about to give birth. So who is this baby? What does the baby represent? Well, it's not very hard for us, I think most of us, to jump to the conclusion that this is probably Jesus. But how do we know that for sure without bringing our interpretation into this? Well, if you look down at the fifth verse in chapter 12, Revelation, we see that this baby is born, and he's a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now, this is a direct reference to Psalm chapter 2, because the psalmist in chapter 2 talks about how uh, God's son is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we all know who God's son is, that is Jesus Christ. And this picture starts to form into our minds that the Jewish nation... The nation of Israel is going to give rise or give birth to the Messiah, the one that's going to rule all of the nations with an iron scepter. And just knowing that, it sounds like a great story, right? You have this prophecy to the nation of Israel that they are going to have a a king that's going to come in the future that is going to help them to rule over all the Gentile nations. They're going to rule the entire world, and this king will rule through them with an iron scepter. Sounds like a happily ever ending to me, right? But every good story can't simply be that simple. Just as every good story has a protagonist, in this case Israel, every good story also has an antagonist. Insert the fiery red dragon. In verses 3 through 4, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now this is the easiest sign to figure out because we don't need some Old Testament passage to interpret what this symbol is. All we have to do is look a few verses more to verse 9. It says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So this dragon is none other than Satan, the devil himself. And it's important to remember that these signs and symbols are not physically representing the characters. The woman, Israel, is not physically a woman. 
And while Jesus was a baby at one point, this passage is not talking about the baby Jesus. It's talking about the glorified, risen, incarnate, majestic Jesus who's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter. And in the same way, the dragon doesn't physically represent Satan. It morally represents Satan for his evil and vile nature. So our culture, what have we done with this dragon? We have changed this passage to get the idea that the dragon is this little red serpent that's on somebody's shoulder with a pitchfork, whispering naughty thoughts into somebody's ear, telling them bad advice. And we created this cartoon description um, or comic book character out of the devil. And I think that one of the things that this does is it starts to create a picture in our minds that this isn't a real guy. This is not a real character. This is a comic book character. I mean, come on, you really expect me to believe in that? And there was a study done this year by the Gallup organization, and they looked at the percentage of Americans that believed in different spiritual entities. And 74% of Americans said that they believed in a God. Of those 74, a third of them said they did not believe in a literal devil. One out of every three people that believe in a God did not believe in a real devil. Which astounded me when I first read that, because... What Satan does, he is a master at deception and a master at trickery. And he comes into our lives, plants seeds of doubt, stirs up temptation, stirs up evil in our lives, and backs away and watches from the sidelines as if he never existed in the first place. And you cannot have a more powerful enemy than the one that you do not believe exists. You can't have a more powerful enemy than the one that you don't think exists. Because if you refuse to believe that your enemy exists... He's already outmaneuvered you, he's outflanked you, and he has you exactly where he wants you. I once heard a story about polar bears in the Arctic, and seals would be on the floating uh, ice caps out in the Arctic Ocean, and they would listen for the vibrations and the sound of fish's fins scraping the bottom of the ice caps. And when they heard that, they would jump in to then go get the fish for their meal. Now, polar bears, they'll take a deep breath and they'll dive underneath, and they'll take their claws and they'll scrape the underside of the ice. And so the seals think that there's fish underneath, and they'll jump in expecting to get food, only to find out that they are the main course of the meal. And again, this is just what Satan does for us. He lures us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that he is masqueraded. He masquerades himself as an angel of light in order to deceive us to the fact that he doesn't exist in the first place, only for us to find out later that he had us exactly where he wanted us the entire time. Because what's the next step? If Satan shows himself for who he truly is, the next step for people to believe, if they believe in a devil, is to believe in a God, right? Satan's goal is to act like he doesn't exist and to stir up as much evil in our lives as possible. But again, the comic book illustrators got it wrong. He's not simply a single-headed red dragon. He is a seven-headed dragon. And it says that he has seven heads, ten horns on his heads, and seven crowns on his heads. And while I'd love to go into the description of this because it's fascinating, we just simply don't have time today. But what I'm going to tell you from the summary of this, one of the points that we get from this is that Satan, while God is ultimately in control, God has granted Satan some sort of dominion over the nations of this world for a time that God has allowed him to have. And we see that several places throughout Scripture. The first being here. The second, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Satan is the lowercase g God of this world. Another place we find this is in Luke chapter 4, right after he's come uh, the 40 days in the desert and Satan is now tempting him. One of the ways that Satan tempts Jesus is by showing him the different nations of the world. And he tells him, I have been granted authority over these nations. 
and he tries to sell Jesus' submission to him by granting him authority over the nations. And so we see several points throughout Scripture that Satan has, in some capacity, some rule over this world for a time. And in a way, that almost makes me feel better because it doesn't take a lot of insight to look around this world and see how broken, full of depravity, wickedness, and evil this world is when it's under Satan's domain. And there's going to come a time where this world will now be under Jesus' domain, and I cannot wait to see the difference that that will have. But this brings up an interesting point. Why was Satan actively trying to kill the baby Jesus the moment he was born? Have you ever thought about that? Why was he trying to devour the child? Why was this dragon waiting to snatch up the child the moment he came into the world? Well, this actually goes back all the way to the third chapter in Genesis, probably the first prophecy that was ever uh, carried out by God. In chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve have sinned, they've been deceived by the devil, and they're getting cast out of the garden, God issues a curse on Satan. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So from this moment on, Satan has been made aware that there is going to at some point come an offspring from Eve that is going to crush Satan's head, put it into Satan. And from this moment on, Satan has made it his mission to stop at whatever cost any chance of this promised offspring, other translations say seed, so this promised seed from coming into the world and crushing Satan's head. That's been his goal all along. Now, if you're Eve and you hear this, who do you think most likely is going to be this offspring? You probably think it's your firstborn son, right? I mean, how did she know it was going to take thousands of years to get to this seed? And she, so she names her firstborn son Cain, which in verse 4, chapter 1, or uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis, she says, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Now, they've often wondered, scholars have, of how to translate this, because the literal word for word into English, she says, I have received a boy Jehovah. It's a very interesting way to say that. I have received a boy Jehovah. And it's my speculation that she probably thought this boy, this offspring, is the boy Jehovah that's going to put an end and crush the serpent's head, the one that deceived me and got me kicked out of the garden. And it's my speculation also that Satan thought the same thing. Because who do we see that he tempts and targets to the point that he kills his brother Abel? But we see that God has another plan. He rises up a third son of Adam and Eve, Seth. And Seth carries on what is known as the seed line. The seed line throughout scripture as we get clues as to who this offspring that is promised to come will be. And whoever this man claims to be the Messiah is, this offspring has to be able to track his lineage back through this seed line. And we get clues sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. And we see that Seth is the first one in that line. And over the next few generations, the world becomes more populated and Satan turns the world full of such such depravity and evil that God has a choice, and that is to destroy the world with the flood and kind of reset itself. But he saves one family. He saves eight people. And who do you think is the line that that eight people come from? Come from the seed line of Seth. And after restarting and repopulating the earth, one of the boys, Shem, that survived the flood, it continues that seed line on. And a few generations go by, and we get to a man, a pagan man, living in present-day Iraq, and God approaches him. He's a man by the name of Abram. And he tells Abram that he's going to continue this line through him, and he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. 
And so we see that the seed line is now going to be through the Jewish people because Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and all of Jacob's sons start the nation of Israel. So now Satan knows that this offspring, this promised seed that is prophesied to crush Satan's head will come from none other than the nation nation of Israel. From that moment on, Satan has made it his goal to target and attack the nation of Israel at whatever cost. We see right away Jacob and his sons are sent into slavery in Egypt for several hundred years, at which point, at the end, the current pharaoh issued a decree to all the midwives to go kill every boy born of the nation of Israel, hoping to either reduce or eliminate the Jewish people altogether. But we see that God spares the Jewish people, delivers them, and as they're traveling back in the desert to their promised land, we see in Numbers that there's another prophecy, that there is going to be out of... Let me read it here. Uh, chapter 24 of Numbers. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel that will crush the skulls and the heads of the surrounding kingdoms and nations. And again, we're reiterating this fact that this prophesied uh, seed is going to come through the nation of Israel. And they get back into their land and they're met instantly with opposition from the surrounding nations for the next few hundred years, constantly fighting off attacks to destroy the Jewish people. And when they're not in war, Satan is constantly pushing his agenda, and they have so much deception, so much distraction by idolatry, pushing the Jewish culture over and over, until we get to 587 B.C. In 587 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire come in, and they massacre and wipe out the Jewish people, leaving the land desolate. And they take back some captives, one of them a young man by the name of Daniel. And Daniel comes back into the Babylonian Empire, lives his entire life through that empire, and sees it overthrown by the Persian Empire. And only three generations into the Persian Empire, we get to this man called King Xerxes. And he has a right-hand man by the name of Haman, who issues a decree throughout the entire kingdom, the entire known world at the time, to kill every last person of one nationality. I'll give you one guess as to what that nationality was. The nation of Israel. But God had, in secret, raised up a Jew in a position of power, Queen Esther, who was able to save the Jewish people and continue them on. But again, century after century, we see that this happens. We see that Satan has tried to eliminate the Jewish people from this world and prevent the seed from coming into existence. And finally, 2,000 years ago, on one still starry night, this seed finally enters the world outside a small town of Bethlehem, in one of the most humblest ways possible, this seed is born in a stable. And as he is born, there are kings in the east that are looking for the signs in the sky of when this child will come, when this prophesied king that will rule the entire world will come. And they see these signs, and they travel to Israel to meet him. And where do you think they go? They don't know he's in Bethlehem. They go to the palace, because they think he's probably born in the palace. And as they get there, what do they find? They find King Herod. King Herod has no idea that this baby was born, that this seed has entered the world. And he has to look up in the records to even figure out that this prophesied Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so he sends the wise men on their way, then turns to his guards, and what does he tell them to do? As we see in Revelation 12, this is the agenda of Satan. The dragon convinces Herod and his bodyguards to send them into Bethlehem to kill every child under the age of two, to stop this child the moment he was born. But God sparingly sends an angel of the Lord to Joseph in a dream 
and warns Joseph, and they flee and go to Egypt until Herod is dead, and then they return, and Jesus is able to grow up in Nazareth and start his ministry. Instantly, as he starts his ministry, right after being baptized, what does he do? He goes into the desert for 40 days, and Satan attacks him directly. Issues a whole different set of temptations, one being trying to give him the nations of this world. Another, he puts him at the top of the temple, and he tells himself to throw himself down because it's prophesied that the angels will stop him from hitting the ground. And my guess is Satan was probably hoping he would perish in the fall. But again, throughout his three-year ministry, he is constantly met by opposition from the devil as Satan tries to put it into this seed. And we finally see after three years that Satan's agenda is finally pushed while the Jewish and Roman leaders at the time put an innocent man on the cross. And finally, at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, they removed his body off the cross and they put him in the tomb. I can only imagine after centuries and centuries of trying, there must have been a party in hell as they thought they had finally stopped this seed from doing what he was prophesied to come to do. But you see, Satan missed something. Satan missed the fine print. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So we see that Satan's agenda wasn't the thing that put Jesus in the grave. Satan's agenda wasn't the thing that ended Jesus' life. Jesus willingly put down his life because it was his life to give up. But in the same way, because Jesus willingly gave up his life, he was also able to take it back up again. And Jesus did exactly that three days later when he rose his life out of the grave. And I can assure you there was no party in hell on Easter morning. That is for sure. And after the resurrection, Satan then turns his fury and rage at the new followers of Christ, the church. But what's interesting, before I get into the church, why did Satan continue to target the Jewish people? Because he still does. And that's very interesting because the promised seed has already come. So why still target them? And frankly, most of the Jewish people disregarded Jesus as being their Messiah, as being this prophesied king. They still think they're waiting for this prophesied Messiah to come. So why still target the Jewish people? And that's because only half of the prophecy in Genesis has been fulfilled. You see, when Satan tried to put Jesus on the cross, he thought he was doing a fatal blow. But it was just a heel strike. It's prophesied that Satan will strike at Jesus' heel. Now, in the medical field, if we have somebody come in, they have a heel wound, I'm very rarely concerned if it's a trauma that that person's gonna have a fatal incident because of a heel wound. There's very low vasculature there. You might get a bad infection, but that's really about it. Now, on the flip side, it says that Jesus will return the favor by crushing the head of the devil. And now, a head wound is very much more serious, very much more likely to end in a fatality. And you see, when Jesus rose from the grave three days later, from a spiritual standpoint, he marked his uh, victory over the devil, over sin and over death, when he rose from the grave. But at the same time, Satan is still allowed to roam about this earth freely. We don't see that, that Jesus comes back and officially, physically crushes the devil until the end of the seven-year tribulation, at the end of the book of Revelation. And so that part has not been fulfilled yet. Well, when, does that be fulfilled? when is that fulfilled? It's fulfilled when Jesus comes back to set up his rule 
and his authority over all of the nations. But he rules through one nation when he does that. He rules through the nation of Israel. So it's my guess that the reason Satan targets them still is if you can end the Jewish people, if you can eliminate the nation of Israel from the face of this earth, you've eliminated the path that Jesus comes back to rule through. And so Satan has made it his mission for the last 2,000 years to still end the Jewish people. And it only took a few decades after Jesus ascended into heaven. War broke out and the Romans again massacred the Jewish people, killing hundreds of thousands of them and sent them scattered, the remainder, throughout the earth. And they remained scattered up until the last hundred years. But during those 2,000 years, they were constantly met with opposition as Satan has tried to eliminate them over and over and over. You get to the Holocaust, perfect example. What nation in the entire world war were they trying to eliminate? The nation of Israel. And the moment in 1948 Israel got their nation back and their land back, when the Ottoman and Turkish Empire was defeated and the British Parliament gave them their land back, instantly, first day, six different countries declared war on them. With 19,000 soldiers, they were supernaturally able to fend off these attacks. And they've constantly been met over and over again with war. But amazingly, there is a small nation the size of New Jersey, still in the Middle East, by the name of Israel, only by God's grace, because there is a Messiah that's going to come back and rule through this nation. Now we turn to the church, because most of us in here are not Jewish. Most of us in here do not belong to the nation of Israel. You see, just as Satan does not want the promise of God to be fulfilled through the nation of Israel, he doesn't want his redemptive promise and work to be done in each of us individually. And just because Satan is currently having some dominion over the world doesn't mean he needs to have dominion over us individually. You see, we have a choice. Which side of this cosmic battle will we be on? Will we be on the side of the dragon or will we be on the side of the sacrificial lamb? You see, just as the dragon couldn't stop Jesus, the seed, from being brought into this world, just as the dragon Satan couldn't stop Jesus from enacting his redemptive work on the cross, just as the dragon Satan couldn't stop Jesus from raising his life back up from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father, the dragon Satan will not be able to stop Jesus from coming back and ruling with an iron scepter over the entire world and crushing the serpent's head. But what does he do to us while we're waiting for this to happen? If you look further in Revelation chapter 12 and you get down to verse 10, we read that the dragon, Satan, goes before God and accuses us, the church, day and night. You see, every time that we sin, we are giving Satan ammunition day and night to have some sort of communication with God. And he goes before God and he accuses us. Justly and rightly so. Because every time that I sin and Satan accuses me, he is being correct. He is saying, look God, Cole has messed up. He deserves eternal condemnation. And God would be completely just in carrying that out. So what do I have to rely upon to beat the devil? Because he is correct in accusing me. Well, look at verse 11. It says, how they, the church, triumph over him, the dragon. They triumph over him by what? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, when Jesus shed his atoning blood on the cross, he was the only person able to do that that had no sin and God was able to pour out his complete wrath and fury for sin on this one innocent man. So that if I choose to accept what Jesus did on my behalf, God is a just God still. He is able to pour out his wrath for the punishment I deserve, but I don't have to receive it. 
But on the second side of that, he decided to rise again three days later from the grave. I was already saved from my sin. So what was the point of rising from the grave three days later? Well, that risen Savior proved that he has victory over sin and death and the devil. So that while I'm still going through this life and I'm still in my sinful earthly flesh, Satan still tries to deceive me that he has control over me, even though I have given my life over to Jesus. But now that I know that Jesus is more powerful over the devil and he has defeated sin and death, the devil has no hold on me anymore. But what areas of our life do we still allow the devil to have control over? Because if you're somebody sitting here and you've accepted Christ into your life and you've admitted that you are a broken sinner and that you need his grace, and now you have victory over your sin, why do we still live in sin? Why do we still go back and allow Satan to give us this false sense of brokenness when we have inside of us the, redemption, the redemptive work of Christ and the redemption of his blood that is more powerful than anything that the Satan has and the enemy has to attack us with? And when you look at different areas of your life, if you're somebody who maybe struggles with a certain sin pattern over and over and over again, don't fall to the trap of Satan telling you that you have to fall to that sin time and time again because you are stronger than that with the redemptive blood of Christ. Are you continually going back and looking at the same lustful images over and over and over and you don't think there's any way to beat that? The next time you feel that pull, verbally announce out loud to Satan that you plead the blood of Jesus and he has no power over you anymore. If you struggle with anxiety and the next time you feel that heart start to race, your mind start to spin and those thoughts wage war, verbally stop and say, Satan, you have no control over me anymore because this blood of Christ is more powerful than anything that you have to fight against me. Are you holding on to bitterness because you're unable to allow forgiveness to a family member or a friend for something they've done years ago? Do you first realize the amount of forgiveness that God had to give you when you enacted your um, trust and belief in Jesus and his blood on the cross? Because you desperately rely on that to get you out of every sin that you do. First, plead the blood over your life, and then plead the blood allowing you to forgive for what that person did to you in the past. Are you struggling with different ways to numb the stressors of this life? Maybe you go to alcohol, maybe you go to drugs, maybe you go to social media, maybe you go to television, relationships, whatever the case may be, if you're trying to numb the stressors of this world, none of that's ever going to satisfy you. And the devil will trick you and make you think time and time again that this time it will satisfy you. But it's not, because there's only one thing that satisfies us, and that's the blood of Jesus. And lastly, are you continuing to prioritize idols in this world, things over God? Sports, money, power, relationships, whatever the case may be, as I just said, this will never satisfy you, ever. The devil has an amazing job of just twisting our minds slightly and allowing us to be deceived to the point that we think these things finally will satisfy us, but they are never going to bring you satisfaction. There's only one thing that will satisfy you, and that's the blood of Jesus. So you see, this is not a message about the dragon. This is a message about the lamb. The humble king who started as the word in heaven made his way down to the theater of this earth and that lamb was slaughtered. Not because he was weaker than the dragon, but because he gave up his life willingly. And because of that, he was able to rise, raise his life back up three days later 
and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he promised one day that he's going to return and set up his everlasting kingdom, and he's going to crush the head of the enemy. So my question is, first of all, which side of this battle will you be on? Will you be on the side of the dragon, or will you be on the side of the lamb? And if you have accepted the lamb into your life, don't fall to the trap of allowing Satan to still rule over you. Because whatever plans and whatever attacks the enemy has, they will be high in deception. But when you focus on the blood of Jesus and when you verbally plead the blood over those accusations of the devil, you are victorious over the devil. So we're going to end now with a song, Plead the Blood. And as we go through this, I want you to think about what areas of your life are you still allowing Satan to trick you into having control over. Think through those areas, plead the blood over those areas, because if you've accepted Christ in your life, the lamb is victorious over the dragon. Nothing but the blood, 
nothing but the blood what can make me all again nothing but the blood nothing but the blood nothing can for sin atone nothing but the blood nothing but the blood nothing good that i have done nothing but the blood nothing but the blood this is all my hope and peace nothing but the blood nothing but the blood for my future this i plead nothing but the blood i plead the blood i plead the blood of jesus it's more than enough yes i plead the blood of jesus my shield my shelter it's my defense I claim it over and over again. I plead the blood. I plead the blood of Jesus. Oh, I plead the That the dragon is more powerful than the devil. Or sorry, do you believe that Jesus is more powerful than the dragon? Because he is. The lamb that was slaughtered is here. He is living in each and every one of us, and he wants to come back and set up his eternal rule, and he will at some point. Do you believe that what he did up there on the cross is enough to satisfy the payment for your sin? And if so, you don't need to live in sin anymore. You don't need to live in fear of the devil. Because what he has done on that cross is enough to satisfy you, and that is the only thing that will ever satisfy you completely, is the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that you've given us to come and just start this Advent series and to turn our hearts to what you've done when you came to live this life on the earth as you were brought into this world as that promised seed that you lived throughout this life and started your ministry and you sacrificed your life on the cross for us and shed your atoning blood for our sins. But not only did you sacrifice yourself for our sins, you rose from the grave three days later victorious over sin and death and the dragon. And one day you are coming back to set up your eternal rule. And I pray as we go from here that we would truly live that in our lives, that we do not need to be afraid of this world or the devil because we have you inside of us. Greater is he that is in you than, is, than he that is in the world. Amen.